we will be in Genesis 42. So if you have a Bible, open up to Genesis 42. Turn there. If you don't have one in your lap and you're thinking, oh no, that's right. Bible study, teaching. Don't just sit there and listen. Go find your Bible. I'll give you a minute. Genesis 42. I'm gonna pick it up in verse eight. We're gonna do uh, about 28 verses this morning. This is only part of the ongoing story, so I will tell you ahead of time. We will stop this morning before we're done with the story. You're gonna have to come back, tune in on Wednesday night to catch the, the rest of it, but we're gonna hone in on something this morning. And to get a sense of it, picking up in verse eight of Genesis 42, it says, Joseph had recognized his brothers, although they did not recognize him. Joseph remembered the dreams which he had about them and said to them, you are spies. You have come to look at the undefended or naked parts of our land. They said to him, no, my Lord, but your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. We are honest men. Your servants are not spies. Yet he said to them, no, but you have come to look at the undefended parts of our land. But they said, your servants are 12 brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest is with our father today and one is uh, no longer alive. Joseph said to them, it is as I said to you, you are spies. By this, you will be tested. By the life of Pharaoh, you shall not go from this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you that he may get your brother while you remain confined, that your words may be tested, whether there is truth in you. But if not, by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. Joseph and his brothers. So this morning we come to the confrontation. This is now 20 years down the line. And it's a fascinating continuation of the story of the life of Joseph. Uh, before we look at this, I, I wanna let you know, especially you graduating seniors, that it's a really good year to apply for admission at Cornell University. Because according to the Washington, uh, uh, or the um, Wall Street Journal, April 22nd, uh, 2020, Cornell is dropping all SAT and ACT administration requirements for the class of 2020. So you don't have to test. You can just go, you know, just apply. And a lot of other schools are following. In fact, the whole idea of standardized tests going out of high school and into college is starting to be questioned. Most colleges recognize that high school GPA goes a lot further in determining success in college than does the SAT or the ACT. Man, I remember sitting down in a huge room with four freshly sharpened number two pencils, looking around at all the other students who are packed in there with anxiety, believing that our entire future success rode on that one test that we were about to take. Well, you can apply to Cornell and skip the whole thing. We've got all kinds of tests to figure things out, don't we? Tests to trying to get into the head and into the heart of people, We've got tests like the classic IQ test. We've got the Myers-Briggs, the Enneagram. I'm a four. We have the, uh, <laughs> the MMPI. That's an interesting one. The MMPI is the Minnesota Multiphasic Personality Inventory. It's a test that takes somewhere between three and four hours to take. It's like 500 questions, multiple choice questions you have to work through. And in a grad program, a long time ago in a life that I very dimly remember, I had to take this test and evaluate it as did the rest of the people in my program. Wow, we were all so incredibly messed up when we got the results back. And then only then did we find out that this is a test that tests for psychosis. So if you take the test, you're gonna come off as psychotic. Some of you may think, no, Rick, the test was actually quite accurate. Be that as it may, hundreds, if not thousands of tests are out there to test intelligence, uh, personality, aptitude. Again, to allow us or to try and help us to peer into the heart and the mind. 
And yet for all our brilliant tests, we continue to get duped and cheated and hoodwinked and bamboozled. Come up with your own words. Don't you hate that? Don't you hate the feeling that you're naive and everybody else knows what's going on? Don't you hate feeling gullible or that moment when you realize you've just been taken? Maybe you respond to an email because you're just sure this one's not a phony. And these go out all the time and I just, it makes me angry. It makes me angry to get those emails that you know are just about getting your information. And people are spending time just to rip you off this way. So none of us want to be taken. You know, Jesus never was. He was never hoodwinked. He was never taken. When he roamed the shores of the Galilee, when he walked the hills of Judea, the streets of Jerusalem, he read the human heart like a book and read it perfectly. We see many times in the ministry of Jesus over and over where he looked right into the heart and knew exactly what people were thinking before they even spoke a word. I would love to be in the room to listen to Jesus call someone on something they hadn't even said out loud. And John gives us insight into this in John chapter two, verse 23. It says, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name, observing his signs, which he was doing. So belief was beginning to burgeon. This is at the very beginning of his ministry. He knows he still has three, three and a half years to go before the cross, before the resurrection, before the ascension, before all things were finished. And so he's in Jerusalem. People are looking, they're seeing, they're responding, they're going, this, this must be Messiah. But Jesus on his part was not entrusting himself to them for he knew all men. And because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. Now, that's an interesting comment or commentary on Jesus and his understanding of humanity and the human heart. We've gone to this passage before just saying, wow, he had such insight, such in understanding, and he didn't need a standardized test to discover it. He just looked right into the heart. Now, this doesn't mean when it says that he did not entrust himself to them. It doesn't mean he was suspicious. It doesn't mean Jesus was paranoid. And it also doesn't mean he was emotionally closed off from relationships. Not in the least. But he did hold his own identity close to the vest, at least at first, because he knew what was in man. He knew what people would do. If they discovered at the outset of his ministry he was Messiah, he knew what they would do with that information. And so with this amazing wisdom and insight, he kept his identity, his identity quiet, close to home. You may recall the first person he even tells is a Samaritan woman by the well of Sakar. Jesus had this amazing way of reading and understanding people. And I've been thinking a lot about that in the last month or two, considering his wisdom of late. Colossians 2, 3, which says, in whom, in Christ, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And Paul says, I say this so that no one will delude you with personal argument or persuasive argument. That is to say, Jesus is the source of wisdom. You go anywhere else for wisdom, knowledge, or understanding, and you may be deluded. You may be deceived. You may be duped. But you go to Jesus and all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are right there. And I'm so thankful that we are invited to come to him. James chapter one, verse five tells us, anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask. And how does God respond to that? You morons, of course you need to ask for my wisdom. No, he gives generously to anyone who asks for wisdom. And listen to this, another passage that we refer to here at the bridge often, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. A natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they're spiritually appraised. That is, they're spiritually valued. The things of God, the things of the Spirit are spiritually understood, judged, appraised, valued. But he who is spiritual appraises all things. That is, if I'm thinking by the Spirit, if I'm thinking with spiritual wisdom, godly wisdom, 
I'm valuing things. I'm judging things as they really are. And yet he himself is appraised by no one. No one that is except the Lord. No one can really judge your heart unless by the Spirit. And then Paul says, listen to this. This is mind-blowing. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he will instruct him? Quoting Isaiah 40, verse 13. But we have the mind of Christ. We have the mind of Christ. I don't know if there's a more mind-blowing statement than that in all of the Bible. That the follower of Jesus, the Christian, has the mind of Christ. That word mind in the Greek there is noun, and it literally translates the faculties of perception, understanding, and judgment. It's the capacity for comprehending that which is true, the mind of Christ. The mind of Christ is never duped. The mind of Christ is not deceived. The mind of Christ is not caught up in the swirl of what all's going on, right, Les? The mind of Christ knows how to judge things, value things, appraise things rightly, and that's the mind that we, Paul says, we have. The mind of Christ. As Jesus' people, we have access to his wisdom, his spiritual perception. And that's a good thing because equally in scripture, we as his people are called to test all things. It's part of what we are to do in this world. Test all things. First Thessalonians 5.19, Paul says, do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophetic utterances, but examine everything. Hold fast to that which is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Or 1 John chapter 4, verse 1, a fascinating verse where John says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. I always found that fascinating, thinking, wow, I can test the spirits. I can, by the mind of Christ, test things in the spirit realm, but understand that that phrase, test the spirits, when Paul says, or John says, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits. While it can apply to the spirit realm, John is talking about human spirits. We know because of the context. Test the spirits to see whether they're from God because many false prophets have gone out into the world. So what I'm saying in all this is the Christian is called to be a wise examiner, rightly appraising, rightly judging, rightly testing everything. We are to proctor spiritual tests. And that's what Joseph's doing in the story before us. This one took me a while, reading through, looking over, thinking, I don't know really, how do I just sit in one place and teach this one thing? How do I, without just going on through three or four chapters to finish out the whole story, what, what is here? And I, I poured over this and I thought through this and I kept asking the Lord, what is our teaching here. In the story before us, Joseph assumes the role of an administrator passing out exams to his brothers. He's testing them. He's putting them to the test. He is the proctor in the room and his brothers are taking the SAT. But it's much more serious than that. He's testing them. As we begin, understand that while Joseph is the administrator of the test, God set the conditions for this test. Verse one of Genesis 42. Now Jacob saw that there was grain in Egypt. And Jacob said to his sons, why are you staring at one another? He said, behold, I have heard that there is grain in Egypt. Go down there and buy for us from that place so that we may live and not die. Well, then the 10 brothers of Joseph went down to buy grain from Egypt. But Jacob did not send Joseph's brother Benjamin with his brothers, for he said, I'm afraid that harm may befall him. So the sons of Israel came to buy grain among those who were coming, for the famine was in the land of Canaan also. Okay, first thing to note, Jacob doesn't trust his sons. Jacob doesn't trust at least the 10 older sons. Why should he? Let's do a little uh, remembering here. Shimon and Levi had massacred a city. 
Reuben slept with his father's concubine. Judah married a pagan and then went into sleep with who he thought was a prostitute who turned out to be his daughter-in-law and he got her pregnant. And all 10 sons returned at one point to their dad with a blood-soaked robe and a sketchy story of Joseph's death by a wild beast attack. Jacob did not trust his sons. As time wore on, he must have had his suspicions. Kidner says, under a father's watchful eye, their actual crimes might be covered up, but not their character. That's a profound statement. It's a reality in all our lives. We might be able to bury our sin for a season, cover our wrongdoing for a time, but the character behind it is still there. The nature still reveals itself. And so Jacob, noting this about his 10 sons, keeps his 12th son at home, the 11th son, Joseph, he thinks is dead. So he keeps Benny home, Benjamin, his last tie to his beloved Rachel. But understand this, if not for the famine, the story would be over. I'd have nothing to preach on. Genesis 42 would not even be necessary because the story would have ended in Genesis 41. But God set the conditions for the test. God set the conditions. It feels like we're facing a final exam right now. Now, I I could be wrong. There may be plenty more tests out ahead of us. But right now, this seems to be finals season, at least to Pastor Rick. And while the first world Americans are stressed out about the toilet paper panic of 2020 and getting back to life as we know it, according to the BBC, quote, the world is at risk of widespread famines, note this, of biblical proportions caused by the COVID-19 pandemic. This is something many of us may not even be considering. David Beasley, head of the UN's World Food Program, said urgent action was needed to avoid a catastrophe. In the fourth annual global report on food crises, he estimated, or the report estimates, that the number suffering from hunger in the world right now could go from 135 million to more than 250 million. Those most at risk are in 10 countries affected by conflict, economic crisis, and some think climate change. The report highlights Yemen, the Congo, Afghanistan, Venezuela, Ethiopia, South Sudan, Sudan, Syria, Nigeria, and Haiti. Even before the pandemic hit, there were parts of East Africa and South Africa, and we talked about this, that were already facing severe food shortages caused by drought and the worst locust infestations for decades. Now, listen again. Beasley, this UN guy, not a Bible scholar as far as I know, not a preacher, not a teacher of the word, he said we could be facing multiple famines of biblical proportions within a short few months. And he said the truth is we don't have time on our side. That is a profoundly true statement. Hey, the world doesn't have time on its side. The natural man doesn't even have truth on his side. And the times ought to tell us that. When we think about what we watch going on, I remind you again, these catastrophic events should demand our full attention as followers of Jesus Christ. We should be alert and aware in Matthew 24, Jesus called them birth pangs, famines of biblical proportions in a UN report, no less. I would laugh if it wasn't so serious. Famines, locusts, Global conflicts. You know, I was thinking about this last week. People say climate change. Well, there is a climate change. It happened with the fall of man. In Romans chapter eight, and you can read this on your own time, Paul said all creation groans. There is a groaning in the very world because of the sin of man, and it is getting louder. This groaning based on an old sin that has affected our world for more than 6,000 years. So famine, locusts, global conflicts, a groaning groaning climate, pestilence, as in COVID-19. 
And these things continue to escalate all around us. I don't say that to cause fear or paranoia, but preparation is in order. And Paul said in Ephesians 5, 15, therefore be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time. Why? Because the days are evil. You don't trust in the days. You don't trust in the fact that we've got all the time in the world. No, as the UN report said, <laughs> time is not on our side. Time is not on our side. So I understand when old Jacob looks around at his sons and says, why are you staring at one another? They're starving in this famine in Canaan and he looks at, what are you guys doing? Don't just stand there, do something. Don't just stare at each other. You know, I know that I bring up the end times a lot. I know that I refer to the last days often. And I don't apologize for looking through the lens of the last days. But I need you to understand, it is never about cheering on the fall of the world. It's never about inviting and looking forward to the judgment of humanity. Hey, won't that be great? That is not the heart behind recognizing the days that we are in. In fact, a spiritually informed, that is with the mind of Christ, in times appraisal says this, Romans 13 verse 10, love does no wrong to a neighbor. I think we need to factor that in on why right now we're holed up in our homes. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. It's not about me. It's not about my rights, what I should be able to get out and do. This is about caring for those around me. He says, therefore, love is the fulfillment of law. Do this. That is, love your neighbor knowing the time, for it is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep, for now salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. And for those of you who believe like myself, the nearness of salvation is glory, it's wonderful, I can't wait. But for those who don't believe, the nearness of salvation is the nearness of condemnation. And if I am to love my neighbor, then my concern is for him, for her. Some might say, well, okay, but if love is the fulfillment of the law, why then does God allow or even cause catastrophic events, these acts of God, famines and, and pestilence? Why would, how could a loving God allow these things? I'll let him answer you. Isaiah chapter 45, verse six, God said through the prophet that men may know from the rising to the setting of the sun that there is no one besides me. I am the Lord. And there is no other, the one forming light and creating darkness, causing well-being and creating calamity. I am the Lord who does all these. And understand, though, if not for a famine of biblical proportions in Joseph's day, I mean, this is literally, chapter 42 is a famine of biblical proportions. And if not for that in Joseph's day, the story would be over. God set the conditions for the test because otherwise Joseph's brothers would never have gone down into Egypt. They sold Joseph off in that direction. No wonder they were standing around staring at each other. Dad says, go down to Egypt. There's grain there. Uh, 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 we don't want, you know, uh-uh. We don't want to go that direction. They never would have. They're driven there. They are driven by the famine. Which makes me think of something else I just need to share, and that is Jesus, like a shepherd, does not drive his people. He leads us. His spirit leads us. He doesn't push and control and, and drive people of faith. He doesn't have to. We're following him. Therefore, he doesn't have to drive us, however, for the stray for the hard-hearted, for the unbelieving, for the guilt-ridden hostage of their own shame, like Joseph's brothers, God will drive them to deliver them. He will drive them to deliver them. It's what we mean when we pray, and, and sometimes we do, that God would bring someone to the end of himself. 
That is God would drive them to the point of absolute need to recognizing I am the Lord and there is no other. God will drive to deliver. Psalm 119 verse 67 says, before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. What's the operation there? Affliction. Psalm 119 verse 71, it is good for me that I was afflicted that I may learn your statutes. Psalm 119, verse 75, I know, O Lord, that your judgments are righteous and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. What do you do as a follower when afflictions come, when biblical famines come, when, when pandemics hit? What does the follower of Jesus do? We praise the Lord and we look to see what he's doing. What are you up to, Father? Father? Afflictions, businesses failing, investments drying up, booming economies shut down, sickness comes, calamity falls, and all for the sake of his eternal goodness and grace. I know that runs counter to the way that we think in the natural man, but Jesus said in Matthew 5, 6, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. But to be satisfied, I gotta be hungry. I need to recognize my thirst. I need to be brought to that place. And so God sets the conditions for the test, bringing the famine into the land that therefore will drive the sons of Joseph or sons of Jacob to Joseph in Egypt, fulfilling exactly what he determined. In other words, God sends hunger for harvest. He will bring ruin for redemption. Starvation for salvation. Because famine always turns the attention of the famished to the only one who can feed. He sets the conditions for the test. Now we've already seen multiple ways in which Joseph is a picture of Jesus. Here's one more that we mentioned a week ago Wednesday. If you didn't hear that, or even if you did, underscore this. Back in chapter 41, verse 55, it tells us when all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried out to Pharaoh for bread and Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, go to Joseph, whatever he says to you, you shall do. The only other time we read that same sentence in the Bible is at the wedding feast at Cana of Galilee when Mary says to Jesus or says to the servants there at the feast, John chapter two, verse five, whatever he says to you, do it. So the people are starving. Pharaoh says, go to Joseph. The wine has run out. And Mary says, go to Jesus. To my Catholic friends, I wanna remind you, that's the last thing Mary ever said recorded in the Bible. Whatever he says to you, do it. Now note this. So the brothers go down to Egypt because of the famine. And in verse six, it says, now Joseph was the ruler over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed down to, them, to him, their faces to the ground. When Joseph saw his brothers, he recognized them. But he disguised himself to them and spoke to them harshly. And he said to them, where have you come from? They said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. But Joseph had recognized his brothers, although they did not recognize him. Joseph, verse nine, remembered the dreams which he had about them. Hold it, note this. The very first thing that Joseph does as they come and bow down before him, they just think he is a ruler in Egypt. They have no idea who he is. He knows who they are. And the moment they bow down, he remembered the dreams. Do you remember the dreams? Let's just check them real quickly. Back in Genesis chapter 37, if you'll look back there, Genesis 37, verse five, which tells us that Joseph had a dream. And when he told it to his brothers, well, they hated him even more. He said to them, please listen to this dream which I have had. For behold, we were binding sheaves, that is stalks of wheat in the field. And lo, my sheaf rose up and stood erect. And behold, your sheaves gathered around and bowed down 
to my sheaf. Then his brother said to him, are you actually gonna reign over us? Are you really gonna rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. But he had still another dream, related it to his brothers and said, lo, I've had still another dream. And behold, the sun and the moon and 11 stars were bowing down to me. He related it to his father and to his brothers. And his father, that is Jacob, rebuked him and said to him, what is this dream that you have had? Shall I and your mother and your brothers actually come and bow ourselves down before you to the ground? Interesting. Joseph sees his brothers. Guess what they're doing? They are bowing down before him and he immediately remembers the dream. See, sometimes that's how God will speak to us. He will speak in dreams and visions. He'll give words of wisdom. He'll bring uh, things into mind and then we'll not be sure what does this mean? Where does this go? I'm not sure what to do with this. So we'll table it for a moment or a season or years. God will bring it back. If it's a word from the Lord, he's gonna fulfill it. And so Joseph is amazed here and he remembers, but get this, understand, only one of the two dreams now stands fulfilled. Only one. This is a partial prophetic fulfillment. The sheaves were bowing down, which I said at the time is fascinating to me because they're presented as stalks of grain. And now the brothers are in Egypt for what? To get grain. So the sheaves are bowing down before the one sheaf, before Joseph, exactly, precisely as he had dreamed. But the second dream remains unfulfilled. See, he also dreamed that the sun, the moon, and 11 stars were bowing down to him. Well, right now, the sun, the moon, and at least one of the stars is not even present. So that dream is unfulfilled while the first dream is fulfilled precisely. So what does Joseph do with this partial fulfillment? He passes out the blue books. He tells everybody, sharpen your pencils. He begins the examination, and there are four tests that I wanna note quickly before we're done this morning, four tests through the rest of the chapter to understand. Test number one is right here before us, and it is the test of prophetic certainty. The test of prophetic certainty. Joseph can say with absolute certainty, dream number one was prophetic, was fulfilled. But the second one, not. So what do we do? We test all things. We examine things carefully to see is, is this second dream fulfilled? Joseph thinking. If there's only a partial fulfillment of what God's doing and, and he said he was gonna do more, we test it out. But what's marvelous here, looking back after all these years, is we are immediately confronted with the fact that God's word is a juggernaut of truth. Man, it just barrels forward to inescapable, inexorable fulfillment. It, it can't be stopped. Remember, as I've said before, that prophecy is not what we hope might happen. It's what God has already seen happen. God has foreseen the whole thing. So he already knows exactly what's gonna come, exactly what's going to happen. Isaiah 46 verse nine says, remember the former things long past, for I am God. There is no other God, and there is no one like me, declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, things which have not been done, saying my purpose will be established. I will accomplish all my good pleasure. That's another passage we return to often because, listen, because biblical prophecy ought to shape all future expectation. Let me say that again. Please hear me. Biblical prophecy ought to shape all of our future expectations. That's the lens of the last days I mentioned before. What does the Bible say is coming? That should form our expectations in this world and beyond this world, our understanding. That's why Peter said, 2 Peter 1.19, we have the prophetic word more sure to which you would do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. How long, Peter? Until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. And it's dawning on Joseph right now, even in partial fulfillment. I believe he begins to recognize the prophetic certainty of his dreams. 
For you and for me, that kind of certainty in Bible prophecy is a great source of hope and of peace and of direction in famine, pestilence, and hard times. Brothers and sisters, we know where this is going. We know what the end result is gonna be. We don't need to be afraid. Genesis 42, verse nine, continuing. So Joseph remembered the dreams which he had had about them. And he said to them, you are spies. You've come to look at the undefended parts of our land. They said to him, no, my Lord. Your servants have come to buy food. We're all honest, we're all men, sons of one man and we are honest men. Pfft, not true. Your servants are not spies, they say. Not true, they're not spies, but they're not exactly honest men. We've already looked at their track record. Not good. And you gotta remember the intrigue here is that Joseph knows exactly who they are and they have no idea who he is. So as he's questioning them, they're giving these responses, but he knows what the truth is. Well, they continue. They say, I'm not sure where I left off, but let's pick up in verse 12. He said to them, no, but you have indeed come to look at the undefended parts of our land. They said, your servants are 12 brothers. Joseph raises an eyebrow, I'm thinking. 12 brothers? Uh, sons of one man in the land of Canaan. Okay, that's true. Then behold, the youngest is with our father today. Joseph doesn't know that. Doesn't know if that's true. And one is no longer alive, and Joseph knows that's not true. The one was sold into slavery. So here's a lie. Here's a, a deception. And continuing, Joseph said to them, it is as I said to you, you are spies. And then he lays it out, verse 15. By this you will be tested. By the life of Pharaoh, which in Egypt is law. For Joseph to say, by the life of Pharaoh, this is a done deal. This is the way it's got to go. You shall not go from this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you that he may get your brother while you remain confined that your words may be tested whether there is truth in you. But if not, by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. So he put them all together in prison for three days. Joseph recognizes his brothers and they don't recognize him. How's that possible? Well, it's been 20 years, and the last time he saw them, he was 17 years old. Now, see, this immediately makes sense to me because I youth pastored for years, and when I look back, I still, to this day, I think of students who were in my youth ministry in the 90s as high school students. I see pictures of many of them pop up in different places on Facebook and other places today, and I don't recognize them because they're adults now. They were teenagers then. They don't look the same. Some of them do. The ones with baby faces, you know. Like, but I, sometimes I just don't know. So here's now Joseph, 20 years later, he's now 37 years old. Not to mention the fact that he walks like an Egyptian. Talks like an Egyptian. In fact, and you'll see this further down, he's not even speaking Hebrew to them right now. He's speaking through a translator. He's speaking Egyptian. So here's this Egyptian lord, ruler, second over all the land of Egypt, looking Egyptian, dressed Egyptian, speaking Egyptian. They have no, no idea who it is. But Joseph knows. And on the surface, you could read the story and say, well, I understand Joseph doing this. I would do this. I would mess with them. I would make them pay. I would be vindictive. Is Joseph being vindictive here? Listen, every single thing that Joseph does in this passage, in this chapter and the next with his brothers, denies an attitude of retribution. It denies a heart of revenge. He's not out seeking revenge. He's testing. He's already applying the test of prophetic certainty. Now, test number two, he's testing the brothers' sincerity. Where are they? How honest are they? Where are their hearts? Joseph knew that his brothers could be cruel men. That was his experience with them. So now he's in a position where he can and he needs to glean the truth. He doesn't know if Jacob is alive or dead. The brothers could easily be lying about that. He doesn't know, for that matter, if Benjamin is still alive. Look at what they did to Joseph. Benjamin, his younger brother, also son of Rachel, 
Also favored by Jacob. What if they had done him him in or, or sold him off as a slave? Joseph doesn't know these things. And so he's applying the test of the brother's sincerity. The words tested here, we see it twice in verse 15 and in verse 16. In the Hebrew is tibachenu, which literally translates examines or tries. Joseph is examining their truthfulness, testing their hearts, even their hearts to see if anything has changed in 20 years. Look again at verse 17. So he put them all together in prison for three days. (laughs) If anyone knew what a stint in prison would do to someone, it was Joseph, who spent more than a decade in prison under the watchful care of the Lord and yet in prison. By the way, think about that. Joseph was in prison for 10 years. We've been in prison for what, five weeks now? I gotta get out, I understand, so do I, but we have yet to be in prison for 10 years. And so Joseph had some understanding here. This could affect the heart. And what he's doing is giving his brothers a little bit of time to consider their situation. It's been said that conscience, memory, and reason are likened to three hounds that bark at the door of a man's soul. And I'm thinking there was a lot of barking going on in their hearts and minds while they were in that prison. Three days in prison, three days. This is a pattern, a pattern of God giving the sons of Israel three days to choose him. Three days to return to him. Even as Jesus, given over by the children of Israel to death on the cross. And and, and please hear me, I'm not blaming only the children of Israel. Our sin put him there. We're all culpable. But Jesus died and was his body in the tomb three days before the resurrection. Three days to consider what had just taken place. Three days for the children of Israel to believe and to receive their Messiah upon his resurrection. Some did. His followers did. First century church, especially the first few years there in Jerusalem, all Jewish who did receive, who did believe in their Messiah three days. Three days. They asked him for a sign. And he, he gave them a sign, Matthew 12, 40, the sign of Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Three days. God always gives the children of Israel three days to believe him, to return to him, to accept him. And I do believe that this is a picture of that, even as Joseph gives his brothers three days in prison to consider their situation and for their hearts to be affected. By the way, there's a, a prophetic way to view this as well. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 8 tells us that a day is a thousand years to the Lord. And that being the case, note this passage. I've always found it interesting. Hosea chapter 6, verse 1. Israel speaking, saying, come, Let us return to the Lord. For he has torn, but he will heal us. He has wounded, but he will bandage us. He will revive us after two days. He will raise us up on the third day that we may live before him. And if a day is as a thousand years, guess what? It's been 2,000 years, two days. On the third day, we're gonna see something amazing happen for Israel. Verse 18, now Joseph said to them, on the third day, do this and live. I love it. It's on the third day that he says live. That's what happens on the third day as Jesus rose from the dead. So Joseph says, do this and live for I fear God. Now, wait a minute. Whoa, he just dropped a hint there as to where he's from. A little hint, but he's speaking Egyptian to them, as I said, and the chapter proves that. But apparently, right right here, he lets slip a very Hebrew word. Out of the gibberish of Egyptian that they're hearing, suddenly they hear Elohim. That is a very Hebrew name or word for God. 
says, if you are honest men, let one of your brothers be confined in your prison. But as for the rest of you, go carry grain for the famine of your households. Bring your youngest brother to me so your words may be verified and you will not die. And they did so. And then, watch this, they said to one another, truly we are guilty concerning our brother because we saw the distress of his soul when he pleaded with us, yet we would not listen. Therefore, this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered them, saying, did I not tell you? Do not sin against the boy, and you would not listen. Now comes the reckoning for his blood. Get the scene, the intrigue here. They're standing there before Joseph, who has just spoken to them and said, you may go and take grain, but one of you is to stay behind. Go and do this, because I fear Elohim. And now they begin talking right there in his presence among each other, one to the other, and they're confessing, and they're sharing, and they're recognizing their sin. Right there in the presence of Joseph. Reuben says, now comes the reckoning for his blood. Wow. Reckoning is the Hebrew word nidros, and it means requirement. Now comes the requirement for his blood. What goes around has come around. It has caught up to us. Our sin has found us out. Now comes the requirement for his blood. Listen, there is always a blood requirement for sin. There's always a blood reckoning. There must be a blood reckoning. Matthew 27, 24, Pilate said, I'm innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And shockingly, stunningly, the Jewish people gathered around there, even in the crowds. They said to him, Matthew 27, 25, his blood shall be on us and on our children. They had no idea what they were saying. By the way, that's the one line that while it is spoken In Mel Gibson's The Passion, that's the one line that is not subtitled because it was so offensive to the Jewish scholars who were asked about this movie. You gotta take that line out. His blood is on us. But that's what they said. And they were absolutely right. The blood requirement for all of our sin is on us. The blood requirement. And the blood of Jesus is the only blood sufficient to meet that righteous requirement. I sin, there must be a blood reckoning. The question is, will it be my blood or his? See, that's why he died. That my blood would not any longer be required. His blood covers, his blood cleanses, his blood washes. It's called propitiation. In the Bible, propitiation is the word that means the righteous fulfillment of the requirement of paying off God's wrath. There must be a blood reckoning. And Colossians chapter one, verse 19 says, it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in Jesus. That is all the fullness of God. And through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. There must be a blood reckoning. And this morning, I am telling you, if you are by faith in Jesus, under the blood of Jesus, the reckoning, the requirement has been paid. If you're not, there is a blood requirement. Jesus would say to you this morning, let my blood pay that price. Let my blood cover you. Back to Joseph's brothers here. Again, it's been 20 years, but it's just taken three days in prison for their confession, finally to surface, the test of sincerity is working. See, when we confess our guilt, when we recognize his blood reckoning for our sin, that's when we're ready to fully embrace grace. Verse 23, they did not know, however, that Joseph understood, and here's the key, for there was an interpreter between them. So this whole time it's been Egyptian, he's been speaking and the interpreter has been translating, though he knows everything they're saying together in Hebrew. Verse 24, he turned away from them and wept. I just gotta point this out. In this scenario, 
Joseph is going to weep five times for his brothers. Five in the Bible is always the number of grace, and I see the parallel. This is how I know that Joseph is not being vindictive. He still loves his brothers, and he weeps over them. But when he returned to them and spoke to them, he took Shimon from them and he bound him before their eyes, which is a replay. This is now exactly what had happened. They bound him. And so now they're watching this take place before their very eyes. And then Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain and restore every man's money in his sack and to give them provisions for the journey. And thus it was done for them. So Shimon is bound, the next eldest brother. Why? Because he bore the greatest or the greater responsibility. See, you understand that, that Joseph now knows that Reuben tried to save him from his brothers. We know that actually from back in the story. This is back in chapter 37. Just listen, when they were throwing him in the pit, when they were trying to do away with him or, or bring harm to Joseph, Reuben heard and rescued him out of their hands and said, let's not take his life. Reuben further said to them, shed no blood. Throw him into this pit that's in the wilderness, but do not lay hands on him. And you might say, well, that's kind of mean, Reuben. But the Bible tells us that he might rescue him out of their hands and restore him to his father. That was Reuben's plan. That was Reuben's intention. He was gonna go back and set Joseph free. Well, now, for the first time, Joseph knows Reuben wanted to save him. So rather than keeping Reuben there in Egypt and sending the other nine back, he keeps the next in line, which is Shimon, who as next eldest brother bears the greater responsibility. And in binding Shimon, he reenacts what they had done to him. Again, not as payback. This is part of the test of the brother's sincerity. See, they bound and they sold off Joseph. Would they leave Shimon in the same position? Would they repeat the sin that they had done 20 years before? They could. Would they take the money and run? Which brings us to the next test. Verse 26 says, they loaded their donkeys with their grain and they departed from there. As one of them opened his sack to give his donkey fodder at the lodging place, he saw his money. And behold, it was in the mouth of his sack. Test number three. Just note this, it's a quick one, but I think important. It's the test of financial integrity. And this test is absolutely brilliant. We've seen the test of prophetic certainty playing out before our eyes, the test of brotherly sincerity as Joseph employs these things, and now he adds another one. It's the test of financial integrity, and it's so amazing. You see, the brothers now just got off scot-free, albeit with the loss of a brother, but hey, they sold off Joseph for 20 shekels of silver. Would they now take the money and disappear? They could. They could just go back into Canaan's land and hide out and hope that they're never followed by Egyptian rulers, by the Egyptian police. Just hope they could get away with it, which is exactly what they had done to Joseph. Would they do this? Would they sell out Shimon in the same way that they had sold out Joseph before? Listen, like almost nothing else, money tests the heart. Money tests the heart. We don't like to talk about it, but we all know it's true. And you Bible students know the only time that God says, test me, has to do with money. It's Malachi chapter six, verse 10. He says, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse so that there may be food in my house and test me now in this, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open for you the windows of heaven, pour out for you a blessing until it overflows. Test me. Test me financially, God would say. God did say. Which is why Jesus says in Matthew 6, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you as well. Our tithes, our offerings, test, examine, and prove our faith. Oh, not to God. No, our tithing proves our faith 
to us. We can know, we can recognize immediately the length, the breadth of our trust in God based on whether or not we tithe. We trust him in offerings. It's, it's pretty simple. It's a test not many like to employ because often when we begin to employ it, it makes us uncomfortable. I told you years and years ago when I did not understand, fully embrace the concept of, of tithing that I, I began to think, well, we have, we have a child through Compassion International. That's my tithing. And then I did the math and it was less than 1% of my income. <laughs> That's not tithing. And I was convicted and it bothered me for a long time until I began to understand why it was that God called for a tithe. It had to do with my heart. It was a stronghold financially in my own life. Understand this as they now leave Egypt, he is testing them financially. He puts all the money back in their sacks. They, don't, they brought the money to pay for the grain. Everyone else had to buy the grain. Joseph's brothers get sent back and all the money gets dumped back in their sacks. They don't understand this right now but it's all put back in so they get the grain for free. And you know, there's a spiritual principle here we see in Joseph. You can't buy grace any more than you can buy grain. Can't buy grace. Take your money. So understand, when we talk about tithing and offering and money and finances and, and church, you don't buy access to heaven. Your tithes and offerings have nothing to do with your salvation. Salvation is by faith in God's grace and that is not of yourselves. It is a gift of God so that no man can boast. It's free, freely offered, freely received. But our tithes and offerings do reveal more about our trust in the Lord than just about any other thing. Would we sell out Jesus for the sake of a few extra shekels in our wallets? Now I have to add something here. Just to the Bridge Fellowship, listen, y'all. Your faithfulness in giving in this season has been astounding. I, 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 just, I just praise the Lord. And I know your Father is pleased with your faithfulness. We have watched the blessing of tithes and offerings continue unabated in a season where very easily people could just say, ah, now we need it, for, we gotta store up. Prepare just in case. And the flow has been remarkable and it hasn't been based on any large gifts. It's been continued faithful giving and God will bless that. And I am honored to see that happening. Now, if you wanna hear the rest of the story, you're gonna have to tune in on Wednesday night. But one last thing I will tell you this morning, along with prophetic certainty and the brother sincerity and the test of financial integrity, there is a final test that is going on here. If you look down toward the end, after he opens his sack and he realizes he's got his money in verse 28, he said to his brothers, my money has been returned and behold, it's in my sack and their hearts sank because they didn't realize what was going on. They thought now we're not only gonna be called spies but thieves. Well, they turned trembling to one another saying, note this, underline this, what is this that God has done to us? What is this that God has done to us? If your Bible's still in your lap, would you turn over to the book of James, the letter of James in the New Testament, chapter one, what I like to call Yaakov, chapter one, and verse 12, what is this that God has done to us? James chapter one, verse 12, blessed is a man who perseveres under trial. For once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. And yet the brothers say, what is this that God has done to us? Yet I had the audacity to say, God set the conditions for this test. Yet I pointed out to you that God is the one who brings calamity. But the Bible also says God cannot be tempted by evil and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he's carried away and enticed by his own lust. 
verse 15. Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished or finished, it brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren, testers of all things. (laughs) Verse 17, every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth so that we will be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. Listen, the testing of Joseph's brothers is not a Joseph thing. It's very much an act of God and they're starting to get it. What is this that God has done to us? What is God doing here? What is God about? And we see it begins with the recognition of their sin, not only toward Joseph, but now toward God. They're beginning to recognize the recompense, the reckoning of the blood of Joseph is on them. They're recognizing this is them and God. It's now fully aroused. For 20 years, they have been haunted by the memory of the cries of Joseph guilt-ridden over what they had done to their own brother, and now suddenly they're beginning to glimpse, though it may just be a crack of light, they're beginning to glimpse that what's going on here is bigger than Joseph, bigger than their brother, and it is for us to recognize test number four is the test of redemptive tenacity the test of God's redemptive tenacity. They have yet to fully comprehend what we can see even right now in the story of Joseph, that God was working to redeem a family, to bring them back together, to set right what was so dysfunctionally broken, to heal what human failure could never hope to fully restore. See, we, we tend to read the story of Joseph in the big picture, and that's good. God's saving the future generations of Israel. He sends Joseph down to Egypt, and then he sends the family of Jacob eventually down there to be protected, to be preserved for 400 years before he brings them back. Big picture, great story. Move on. Don't move on. Because this is a story that proves out, that tests and bears to be true the redemptive tenacity of God. What this shows us is the immediately intimate concern of the Lord to restore brothers to each other. To bring a broken, wounded, sin-ridden family back together. That's what God was doing in the immediate, in the life of Jacob and the brothers and Joseph. The whole story proves to us the intentional grace and the redemptive tenacity of God. Let me put it more personally to you. Have you given up on your family? He hasn't. Have you given up on a brother or a sister? He hasn't. Have you quit trying in certain relationships, thrown in the towel? Not God. Have you lost faith in Jesus? And you find that life is getting more and more messed up. The redemptive tenacity of God still in this season is that God is at work. God is still setting the conditions. He's still proving his love and his faithfulness. First Peter chapter one, verse one, Peter says, in this, you greatly rejoice even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials so that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Hey, Jesus knew what was in man. Jesus knows what's in this man. He knows what's in you. He knows what's needed. And so Jesus became man. He went to the cross to prove God's tenacious, redemptive love once and for all. Let's pray about this. Father, I 
believe, Jesus, as you said, that my Father is working and I myself am working. And I accept and believe the work that you're doing right now among us, in us personally, in our families, in our friendships. Lord, I pray for the patience among us all to see and to live out that redemptive tenacity. Lord, to shut the mouth of grumbling and complaining and rather exchange that for hearts that are speaking the truth of the gospel, that are looking to where we can show love one for another. Father, I pray that you will break through the hard-heartedness of this nation and this world, that you will get in and that you will soften hearts and be it a prison of stay-at-home orders or be it famines or, or pestilence, Father, or any of the things that we see, those birth pangs going on, we pray that the pangs would bring realization. We ask, Lord, for redemption for our world. We pray, Father, for eyes to be opened among the unbelieving and the lost and those who are, Lord, held by the chains of their own sin. We ask for an outpouring, Father, of grace and compassion like we have never seen before and a, a ready acceptance, a receiving of that grace in our world. And for my part, Lord, and for the part of my brothers and sisters, I pray that as we open our mouths, we would not do it to grumble or gripe, but we would do it to bring forth grace. May we be proctors, Lord, of grace. Lord, we thank you for your word to us this morning. May it convict, may it challenge, and may it comfort as needed. In Jesus' name.